The reading this morning is taken from the book of Exodus. It's on page 75 of the Pew Bibles, uh, chapter 17 of Exodus. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've titled this sermon, Enemies Within, Enemies Without, and How God Overcomes Both. Have you ever felt unsettled, on edge, or uncomfortable with your surroundings? The closest analogy I can think of the plight to the Israelites is perhaps being homeless, or refugee, not having a permanent place to live or a country to call your own, living a transient life. If it were us, what would sustain us? Hopefully, it would be our faith and the sure knowledge of our calling. The Israelites had entered into Egypt 400 years previously. Now they had left as a nation. 
God was starting to move in accordance with the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was taking them on a journey from slavery to the promised land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. But on the way, they would have to make a very important pit stop. Here God, through Moses, would give them the 613 commandments of the law, including the Ten Commandments. God was calling out a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to bring the message of salvation to the world. In less than six months, the Israelites had witnessed the power and glory of their God. They had seen the ten plagues which ravaged Egypt, the last of which they had been protected through by the blood of the Lamb. They were guided by the visible presence of God, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had escaped their pursuers through the banked waters of the Red Sea and in just a few minutes had seen them destroyed as those same banked waters collapsed. And as we heard last week, despite their grumblings, God graciously provided food for them in the desert of sin, manna in the morning and quail in the evening, so that they will know that I am God. So as the Israelite community leave the desert of sin on their way to Mount Sinai via Rephidim, the question is, do they know that their God is with them? Have they softened their hearts to God? Have they learned that God keeps his promises? Unfortunately, we know the answer from the passage which Anne read for us. The answer is no. At Rephidim, there is no water, and so the grumblings start again. They quarrelled with Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? In the previous chapter, in their distress, they looked back fondly on their time in Egypt and wished they had died by the Lord's hands. But this time, it was personal. Moses is held to account for their plight. You can imagine Moses being backed into a corner by an angry mob, fingers pointing, Moses, this one is on you. It's interesting to try and put ourselves into the Israelites' shoes. Can we sympathise with them wandering round a desert with no water, watching their children and livestock suffer? Of course, we don't know how long they'd been in this predicament. They may have been catastrophizing to some extent. But instead of turning to God, Moses has become a figure of hate. It's all his fault. Last week in Jacau's sermon, he told us the lovely story of a Christian lady who, although she had so little, was so thankful for what she had. She counted her blessings and, in fact, 
she was a blessing to those who knew her. She had learned the secret that godliness with contentment is great gain. This was a lesson the Israelites still had to learn. In fact, they had upped the ante from grumbling to testing. Moses tells them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Moses is exasperated and cries out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. It's sad to say the Israelites will up the ante again as their journey continues. At Mount Sinai, when Moses is delayed in coming down the mountain, they fall into idolatry and make the golden calf. At Kadesh Barnea, the staging post for entry into the promised land, they rebelled again and through unbelief refused to enter. We can see a progression here from grumbling to testing to idolatry and ultimately rebellion. At Kadesh Barnea, a line had been crossed and God had to judge their unbelief. The whole Exodus generation, other than Joshua and Caleb, would die in the desert. And only then would a new generation enter into the promised land. Had there ever been such a generation who were so close to God, yet so far away? Yes, I think there was. But then it was the leaders rather than the people who had the rebellious hearts. And at a false trial, they condemned their promised Messiah to death on a cross. In respect of God's judgment, though, grace always comes first. Divine judgment is always delayed for as long as possible to give people time to repent and change direction. In Exodus 34, a testimony written by Moses, he assures us that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so God shows mercy at this time to the thirsty Israelites at Meribah. At God's command, Moses strikes a rock with his staff and water comes out for them to drink. The lesson for us, I think, is to guard our hearts. We must take our thoughts captive, recognising negativity, reflecting on what has caused it, and then offer it to the Lord in prayer. We can bring our problems and 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 anxieties before him. Let's not harden our hearts as they did in the desert. Let's keep short accounts with each other and with God. Enemies without. In addition to problems inside the camp, 
the Israelites were now attacked by a hostile force, the Amalekites. Pharaoh had tried to prevent Israel entering into God's salvation, but now the Amalekites were trying to stop them entering into the fullness of God's promises, entering into the land of milk and honey in Canaan. They were distant cousins, a nomadic people from the Sinai Desert. From Deuteronomy 25, we know that they didn't dare a frontal attack, but picked off the stragglers at the rear, probably the old and the infirm. Deuteronomy tells us they had no fear of God. Joshua, Moses' young assistant, is tasked with assembling a fighting force. This is his first mention in the Bible. While Moses held up his hands with the help of Aaron and Hur, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. The symbolism isn't explained It may have represented Moses' appeal to God or acted as a rallying call for the soldiers. Yahweh was on their side. But by sunset, the Israelites had the victory. The day was theirs. While divine sovereignty and human responsibility had worked together, Moses in his prayers, Joshua with the sword, The ultimate victory was the Lord's. By now, though, the Israelites were probably asking the question, why? Why were they taking the long route through the desert when the direct route along the coast would have had them a couple of weeks close to their objective? Why were they suffering the privations of the desert and fending off fierce tribes? The answer is that God had things to teach them. They must learn that he would provide for them and protect them. Sometimes the direct route is not the best route. Alec Mottier, in his commentary of Exodus, says this, The Lord's dealings with his people establish a convincing testimony to the world. And this is part of the purposes behind them. Had God not led them through the desert, instead of the way of the Philistines, they would have had nothing to say convincingly to the world. Similarly for us. God will not always lead us in the direction we think is best. He has things to teach us. We are to walk by faith in the twists and turns of life, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God knows the bigger picture. We don't. But like the pillars of cloud and fire, He will always be there to guide us. The lessons we learn from God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament stand on their own merit. 
Often, however, a deeper meaning is brought out in the New Testament as inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10 is a case in point. Here, Paul is answering the Corinthians' questions about food offered to idols. To what extent can believers participate in this under the freedom of the new covenant? Paul refers them to the history of Israel, the Exodus generation, reminding them of God's discipline. The Corinthians should not use their liberty in Christ as an excuse for sin. But this is the part of the chapter which is especially pertinent. Verses 1 to 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Whenever the word rock or stone is used symbolically in scripture, It always refers to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. While the rock that Moses struck was a real rock and the water they drank was real, Jesus was spiritually with them in the desert. However, the incident foreshadowed or looked forward to a time when Jesus would be with them in person. Just as the rock at Meribah had to be struck for water to come out, so Jesus had to be struck and killed at Calvary for the waters of salvation to flow freely through the power of the Holy Spirit. In a remarkably similar incident, which occurs several years later, recorded in Numbers 20, the people are again murmuring because of a lack of water. This time, however, the Lord tells Moses to speak to the rock rather than striking it. But Moses, in his anger at the people, disobeys and strikes the rock as he did previously. God was displeased with Moses and sadly, would not allow him to enter the promised land at this time. The symbolism here is that Messiah was only to be struck once. His sacrifice on the cross was complete. He didn't need to die and suffer again. The waters of life are now freely available. We just have to ask. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To conclude, let's let's guard our hearts, keeping short accounts with God and with each other. In the twists and turns of life, let's be encouraged to walk by faith, knowing we have a true guide, Jesus, who goes before us. It is he who offers the waters of eternal life. We only have to ask. Amen.